Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Guillaume, partner at Credo Ventures, a venture capital company focused on early stage investments in Central Europe. His mission is to identify and back the most interesting early stage companies in the region, support them in their growth plans, including expansion to the US and global markets, and help them to achieve their objectives. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Vaban, a Qatar company, is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. An all-in-one integrated solution to form syndicates, VC funds, and co-investment SPV programs built for scale. Supporting the next generation of global ventures from fundraising to exits, Vaban provides an automated back office, allowing their clients to focus on what matters, finding the next unicorn and building their network. Vaban has facilitated over $1 billion of capital invested in companies such as Revolut, Bolt, and Airbnb. To learn more, please reach out at vaban.io forward slash EUVC. And don't forget to mention EUVC. The 15th of December is the day you need to have in mind. EUVC is hosting a webinar with Kathy, David, and Andreas. Kathy will show us how to approach PR as an individual and as a firm. Sign up at eu.vc forward slash events. Guillaume, welcome to the European VC. Super cool to have you here. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. So I actually didn't have the chance to connect with you in person in Prague last week, but we, you know, Reyes and I, EVC was present for both Engaged and Disruptors. So I'd love to hear, you know, what's going on in Prague? What's what in that ecosystem? A lot is going on. I would say it's been fairly active for us. Obviously, most of the team is based here. Me not being the the Czech uh, investor on the team, I, I... I have this bird's eye view of what's going on, but all, all I can observe, there's been a, a number of uh, VC funds popping up and a lot of them are doing interesting stuff. So we're, we're finding ourselves co-investing more and more with the micro funds locally. And that's kind of happening in each countries of CE. Uh, we, we do that now a lot in Poland, in Romania, in Bulgaria. I can name at least five or six micro funds or, I mean, even in terms of size, they're not that micro anymore mm-hmm. uh, in each of those countries yeah. that are helping the local ecosystems and doing fantastic uh, early stage investments. So it's more for us now. We, we have to uh, keep good relationships with them and, and stay on top of it all, trying to figure out uh, where we co-invest. And sometimes now we have to compete as well, which is new. On the point of Prague and Czech, <laughs> how much have you actually done in Prague as a fund? Quite a bit, but not as much as you would think, actually. Um, the most famous one we've done in Prague is uh, Product Board. And then we've also done Price Effects in the past, which is Funnily, a German company, but the biggest office and most of the team is here. We've recently done a couple of very early stage stuff. But also, when it comes to Czechs and Slovaks, we've done a lot of diaspora, actually. So we, we end up investing in those Czech founders, Slovak founders that are in the US or in London. And their teams are here, but we interact with them more so in, as expats and as members of diaspora. And on the topic of Credo, I think, you know, I want to say congratulations are in order because you guys just announced, announced the fund, but I will mm-hmm. let you say everything about that. So what are the news? What did you announce? What's what? What should people know? What should people be aware of? Yeah, so we uh, announced our fourth fund, uh, which is 75 million euro 
for me, it's been a, an interesting experience because we announced it this week. We did all the, the PR and we did the reach out and been receiving messages like, oh, that's super cool. But on a day-to-day basis, for us, it's, it's very uh, uh, as you were because we had the first close in April and we've already been actively deploying this fund back then. So I have to remind myself of what the pitch was, what would what was the strategy we gave when we actually fundraised? <laughs> it's, it's almost a year between the active fundraising and, and now the PR around it. But the, the gist of it is that we continue as we were. I think we still have a deep belief in the early stage of, of the Central and Eastern European region with a higher emphasis on diaspora, as we've already touched upon. And we want to keep writing those checks anywhere from zero. I mean, a zero dollar check wouldn't be very interesting, but as early as it gets, so 100K, I guess, let's call it as a minimum up to three, four, maybe five, technically million uh, as a a first check. So very much pre-seed stage, given the current environment, any verticals. And I think the interesting bits about it are specifically the size of the fund, which, as I mentioned, is 75 million euro. That's smaller than our previous fund. It's not because we couldn't raise more, just to be clear. We'll get into (laughs) that. And then the team, I'm very excited about the team because there's a bit of a transition happening at Credo. um, And I've indirectly become fascinated with transition planning in, in funds, which I think is something that's very difficult to pull off for a lot of funds. But I here, love that Credo, topic. Yeah, I've, I've, I don't know if you've listened to the Benchmark uh, podcast from Acquired. Uh, it's fascinating. And in a way, we, we draw a lot from that as well, where Credo historically was four GPs. Two of them are retiring. The two founding GPs are staying on and, and having this very conscious effort of, hey, we, we want this thing to continue beyond us. Uh, so I came back uh, and we can get into that afterwards. And then we recruited two new GPs, uh, Karolina Monoshkova, who is Czech, was based in New York, but is going to relocate to Europe, and Maciek Newtek, who is Polish, based in Krakow. And so now we have this dynamic of five GP team where you have the two founders, but three young blood, let's call it, even though I'm kind of in this in between and having been at Credo since 2016. And it, it makes for a super yeah. exciting dynamic. And I'm super thankful that guys like Andre and Jan are still, they're still hungry enough both to care because... They could also just collect the carry and, and go play golf or something. And also uh, to, to give us this chance to uh, continue credo beyond this. Guillaume, before we dive into like the nitty gritty, you, you, you talked about two super interesting topics. And I think we really want to talk about them. But I have kind of some more more kind of context questions to ask. One is, I guess from your name that you're French. Yeah, it's, it's hard to hide. How the fuck do you end up in Prague? Tell us the story. And then the second question for you that I'd love for you to answer as well is credo in my language, my, my home language, Latin based language, it means like belief system or something like that. But mm-hmm. I'd love to ask, you know, what does it mean for you at the firm and, and what's the story of that name? Sure. Uh, so quick word about me and, and how I ended up here. I think you'll find the answer to be very similar with most expats in Central and Eastern Europe. It's about a woman. Uh, my, my wife is originally from Prague. There's one thing about me that, yes, I am French, but I've actually not lived in France for the last 15 years. I left right after high school, did, did my studies abroad and ended up in London, as a lot of French people do. Met my wife there. And as soon as we started dating, she was like, yeah, you know how we meet here in London, but I'm going back to Czech Republic. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we'll worry about that later. So she did delay things quite a bit, three years to be exact. But eventually she, she was very keen to move back to Czech Republic. Prague, specifically where she's from. And it just so happened that myself, I, I was getting a bit tired, actually, of, of London. It's a, it's a hectic city, a fantastic city, but really hectic. And so I was like, you know what, Let, let's give this a shot. But the underlying part of this was I had started to work in BC in London for a very small fund that had just been set up and having a lot of fun doing that. So I kind of wanted to continue in BC. 
And when you combine, hey, I want to work in VC and I want to work in Prague, back in 2015 at the time, your options were a bit limited. <laughs> there was Credo, there was uh, maybe one more fund called Enern that has now renamed uh, Kaya, which were trying to do this VC model as we know it now, but back then you could raise money as an entrepreneur, all of us Eastern Europe, but it didn't mean you were getting VC money. Uh, the, the mindset was often wrong, both on the entrepreneur side and on the, on yeah. the investor side. Uh, so anyway, I reached out to Credo well ahead of actually moving here and uh, serendipity, timing and luck kind of all collided into me having a chance to, to join the team because they had just raised the second fund. We're thinking, hey, maybe we could use some help as an uh, with an associate. And I jumped in and the serendipity continued because I knew nothing about Central and Eastern Europe and, and doing VC here. But turns out I actually freaking love it. It's so much fun, especially compared to my experience in London. There was a lot less running around chasing hot deals and a lot more trying to figure out whether an entrepreneur has what it takes to uh, take this global and, and think beyond their uh, engineering background. Lots of amazing engineers where you never have to worry about uh, whether they truly do AI and machine learning because they just don't lie about these things. They, they just tell it like it is. And <laughs> sometimes you're the one having to, to kind of put those words in their mouth to simplify it. But all the focus is more on the commercialization, the go-to-market productization and Honestly, even in, in just the six years I've been here, the, the quality of the founder has, has just increased so much as well, which has been a lot of fun to participate in. Uh, so yeah, it's a long, long way of explaining how I ended up in, in Czech Republic. It's my wife's Czech. There you go. I actually, I really love... What was the other... Uh... The other question was, uh, where does the name Credo come from? And what does it mean to you? I, I'd love to give you a, a super deep explanation, but it's actually kind of random. I, we literally had that conversation with Andre and Jan a couple of weeks ago. By the way, guys, where does the name come from? Because, you know, we're going to do this PR and, and they're going to ask. So Jan and Andre have known each other since they were kids, which is also kind of adorable because they've <laughs> been in business forever together. I love the adjective you chose there. <laughs> adorable. <laughs> yeah, it is, I think. And they, they've built quite a few businesses together. At some point in time, they had a third partner in, in the mix and he came up with the name. And uh, funnily enough, that's the guy who they've since split from, I forget which of the businesses it was, maybe a web agency or recruitment agency. They, they built a bunch of stuff. And so there's that third guy who's, who has nothing to do with Credo anymore that came up with the name. And I think he just came up with it randomly. So there you go. No deep meaning. It's a pretty good name. I like it. And, and the logo, the egg, is. I guess we can make it about hatching the, the startups and, and everything. But I would be lying if I didn't say a lot of this is retrofitted to what we do. The, the previous logo had nothing to do with an egg. Isn't that what VC is about, retrofitting stuff? <laughs> when, when things work, you, you fit the narrative back to, uh, we knew yeah. all along the thesis is, uh, w was clear from the get-go. That's when you publish your thesis from the IC back in the days. <laughs> I admire the VCs that publicly publish their thesis on why they're investing in something because having now seen a couple of, of good exits, and, and so let's call them successes, and rereading those, those IMs, you realize how little you know at the end of the day. And that's why at the early stages, you're investing in those teams. And yes, you have an idea of the space they're going after and the market that's there. More often than not, they're going to pivot. I don't know if it's a proper pivot. This has become a very loaded word, but yeah, they're going to change directions quite a lot. And you're kind of trusting that the team is going to navigate this. And you end up with an end result that's sometimes so far off from that initial thesis that I admire the, the sharing. We could do it because we. I don't think we have too high egos. So we've thought about sharing uh, the thesis of a couple of companies that have exited to show maybe how far off we, we were in some cases. <laughs> or there's a few I need to reread now to check. Maybe we, we got a few right as well, hopefully. But we get the teams right. That's the most important. Exactly. And as long as that's also what 
drives the majority of the investment decision. It's actually quite all right that you had a thesis yeah. around what the business would turn into, but you know, but you were also humble enough yes. to say that it is the team we're betting on. Guillaume, you said something else. I think there's two things. We need to double down on the succession planning since that's a topic you love. It's something that people rarely talk mm-hmm. about. But before we go there, I think we should just, you know, return to the topic of you only doing 75 um, and, and deciding to, to go smaller. Sure. Just take us through in a super, you know, detailed manner. What was the deliberations there? You know, and also the discussions, mm-hmm. the pros and cons. And, you know, because we actually last night we interviewed uh, uh, Tim Draper and what he said was, and that was actually from a fund size perspective, driven very much by, well, will there be enough available capital at the LP side? And there he said, well, I think that managers should be thinking a lot more about the relationship to the LPs right now than necessarily raising more capital from them. Because whether they have capital now or later doesn't really matter. It's now that you can build the relationship. But I'd love to just hear your thinking through all of this. So to give context, we, this is our fourth fund, uh, which is 75. The first one was in 2011, was 18 million. Second one in 2015 was 53 million. And that was because the EIF kind of came in at the last minute and almost doubled the size of it. Not quite doubled, but significantly increased the size. And then third fund, to continue that trajectory back in 2018, we raised 100 million. And that was from a realization that in our second fund, we potentially hadn't kept enough, as much capital as we wanted to for follow-ons because defending your, your equity or even building it up in those follow-on rounds can derive a, a lot of, of your returns. So we're like, all right, this time 100 million and we... We're going to do 60% for follow-on and 40% for new investments. Fast forward, uh, I think the, the market heated up so much in 2020, 2021, that we were basically not finding ourselves doing follow-ons as much as we could for two reasons. One, by the time our promising companies would reach the Series A, Series B rounds, the valuations were crazy, really high, which is great when you're already in there. But when you have to decide, hey, do we participate? Like. We, we would deploy, but uh, the, the tickets you had to deploy to maintain your, your shareholding were completely uh, enormous for us. So we, we did do some follow-on, but not as much. The other reason was that some of those follow-on rounds were extremely competitive, so, so much so that even when technically we have pro rata rights and legally we get a, a right to deploy, etc., in practice, sometimes you don't even get to do that because the new investors were just fighting for as much allocation as possible and, and just not really giving you a chance. So... All this to say that in hindsight, we weren't doing 60% follow-on. It was more, it was closer to 50-50. So now we're fundraising the fourth fund and we're like, all right, let's 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 rethink this back to where things were ironically a little bit more towards our second fund and have a smaller fund where we'll do less follow-ons. That was the main reason behind the raising 75 instead of 100. Funnily enough, the market has now changed again, where it's cooled down significantly. And I think there's going to be quite a bit of follow-on or even bridge requirements. So we, you, you do want to keep quite a bit of capital for supporting the portfolio, but we're still quite happy about the fund size because it gives us a lot of flexibility at the end of the day. It gives us this ability to, to play at the pre-seed stage in ways that I think we wouldn't be comfortable if our if our fund was 200 or, or even 150. Because the backdrop of all this is that obviously a fund size is also a target on your returns, right? Uh, you got to return it three, four X, ideally, if you want to be one of those good funds. And you're just raising the bar on, on the returns, meaning you're raising the bar on the how big can this get uh, answer question you, you ask of the, the startups you're speaking with. And I don't like asking that question, frankly. When you're looking at the pre-seed at a passionate team that's obsessed with the product and a vertical, I'm, I'm not saying let's go in an obvious niche that will never carry to a broad audience, but I've seen it again and again that 
they make their markets at the end of the day, the right, the good teams, and and they'll figure it out. So of, we sh- we need to ask the question, but I want to be okay with the we want to be okay with the middle ground, meaning that we can take those crazy early bets where you write the pre ticket, you're taking ten to fifteen percent equity for a million, let's say, uh, which is right now what we're seeing as far as as pre seed valuations and run sizes, and then we still hope they're going to be unicorns. Don't get me wrong, that's still the model. But you start to have meaningful exits much earlier on, and you're okay with those exits. Meaning, if they exit for 300 million, which is still an incredible story, basically, you start to move the needle on your fund's return, even because the fund is smaller. And so that's been very comfortable and, and, and a lot more fun, frankly. The last factor is we had to have a long and deep discussion whether this whole CEE focus still made sense. Because again, last year, things were so wild and so much capital was being deployed that we would see London based funds come and do seed stage investing in the region. And we had to ask ourselves, like, what is our purpose? At the end of the day, this is a bit arbitrary, the idea that you're going to invest only in this region. But we still believed in it because we've been here for 10 years. We've kind of seen this region grow and we've developed a network and we think we have amazing context on all the teams we, we meet from the region. Of course, we, we have to balance out for the bias of towards the region, meaning that if we see a team, it has to be a category champion potential, regardless of the fact that it is from the region. So you still want to address that. But we, we still wanted to keep that geographic focus. And so when you keep the geographic focus, you're also mindful again of, of the potential of your fund return. It is an exciting region. It has delivered incredible companies like UiPath, but who knows when the next ones will come up and we don't want to overheat the region. There's been a lot of funds being raised as we discussed of that range now, 40 to 70, 80 million. There's half a dozen in each market. It's a lot of money. All those funds are going to have to be returned three, four times over. And uh, yeah, we wanted to make it easier for ourselves, basically, and more attractive for our LPs, because at the end of the day, that's, that's how you choose succession. I'm actually very curious to ask you something, because you've made a very bold choice of not growing your fund size, but actually shrinking it. And that runs very counter to what you've seen most players do in the past years. But at yeah. the same time, a lot of new players have come in, and some great, and maybe some a bit less so. You guys are, are really killing it. So I'd love to hear, how do you think about the state of VC, the competition in the market, and all the new funds that are coming up? I mean, yeah, the, the, the easy answer would be that our lives would be easier if there weren't so many VC funds. Uh, as I said, now we, we've had to do a couple of competitive deals where you have to kind of come up with a reason why they should take your money and not someone else's, uh, which for us was new uh, historically. That, that wasn't really a thing in, in Central and Eastern Europe. But at the same time, it's, it can be a good thing in that returns of, of VC have always been massively skewed towards a handful of high-performance funds, and then there's a long tail of actually it wasn't a very good investment. And I don't think that's going to change. The one part where I'm, I'm concerned would be I don't want it to overheat so much that then there's a counterflip, or I forget the English uh, term for this, but all of a sudden, a couple of LPs who were starting to dab into making VC commitments are going to lose spectacular amounts of money and get completely turned off. And all of a sudden, there's a massive drain of, of potential capital for fundraisers. But I kind of like uh, this. There's a simple framework of, of VCs about access to deals and then picking deals and then winning deals. There's these three axes. And we've seen a, a number of first-time fund managers being popping up. As long as you have a thing that's yours on one of these three axes, or ideally all three, then it might be worth doing it. I agree with you. There's some funds out there where arguably their entire purpose is access. Like, I just get into the deals. Uh, I have amazing network. I get into the deals. I don't even pick. I just I'm, I'm a, I follow. I do have to worry about winning because I'm following uh, someone else's around and they might not let me in, but same through network, through personal relationship. 
they, they managed to get in there. And that can be a viable strategy, I think. I'm, I'm an LP in a couple of funds uh, like this, curious to see how they do. One big element that comes up as well is, I think a lot of it comes down to that idea of access and, and then the winning, meaning getting your ticket into that hot round, comes down to, to your ability to form relationships with the founders. For all the talk of VC adding value and everything, so far the, the competing deals uh, that I've won, let's say, and, and that we were the ones where, who end up investing, it's not because we're making huge promises on our ability to help them and, and raise more capital. I mean, we have a talent partner and we can talk about it, who's been adding amazing value. But at the end of the day, it usually comes down to ability to kind of relate with those founders, behave professionally in terms of getting back to them with the follow-up question. It sounds really dumb to say it out loud because it makes it makes me think like, damn, the, the bar is low, but just, <laughs> yeah, following through. I've had some founders be absolutely delighted of the experience, even though I told them there's no way I'm investing in this. Because I followed through and I, I gave them a, a vaguely clear answer. And it's never that clear. Like, don't, don't get me wrong. I, I, I'm not stepping into that one. At least you gave me closure and I enjoyed our interaction and the questions you were asking seem to be relevant. And I'm like, okay, I'm happy you see it as positive. So if you can do that as a fund manager, as a, as a VC, then I think you, you can have an edge. You can create something interesting. I'd love to ask you something, actually, because you just said there, I'm also an LP in a couple of these funds, right? And I'd love to ask you, as a partner at a VC firm, how do you think about doing LP commits? Are you thinking about it in terms of building a portfolio? Are you thinking about, you know, getting humongous financial returns because you're betting in these potential outlier performing VC funds? Are you thinking it from a network building perspective, deal sourcing, uh, follow on investing? You know, what is the rationale for you as a partner at Credo? I, I would say none of the above is completely serendipitous and opportunistic. First of all, I want to minimize this activity. Like it's literally just two small tickets and it, it kind of came down to, to uh, relationships as well. Like, so one of them is Declan Kelly uh, in Berlin, where I, I met him at Web Summit. And before I met the guy, I had like five different people tell me, hey, you should give that guy money. He, he does interesting things. So, so much so that when I met him, I was like, hey, can I give you money? I exaggerate because obviously then we had a couple of conversations so he could tell me about his model and, and his track record and what he's working on. I was like, yeah, that's, that sounds interesting. And there's also the fact that the type of LP check size that he, he was looking for was in the range that I could contribute because I'm pretty sure Excel or Index are not interested in my money or not the, the check size I can write anyway. And so there you go, we, we did it. And since then, the relationship has been... like I, I've, I've narrowed down a lot of my relationship with other VCs, not really to tangible outputs in terms of pipeline and, and are you sharing deals with me, et cetera. Just mostly VCs that I enjoy interacting with because we have an interesting intellectual conversation about having opinions on that, about startups. There's just this spark that happens of, you can tell that I certainly do and, and so do they. They're just saying startups all day long. Like even when the job is over, they're reading or listening to podcasts about startups, entrepreneurship and, and VC. They're kind of weirdly obsessed with this world like I am and you just have a good conversation out of it. And I keep very good relationships with VC funds where there's this weird co-petition happening, right? Like we have a very good relationship with Speed Invest, but to some extent we also compete on a number of deals. I talk rather openly with a number of, of people at Speed Invest just because I feel like I'm gaining from it. They challenge me on my thinking on certain deals. I challenge them. And sometimes I share deals like, hey, I'd like your opinion on this, even though I realize that if you like this deal and I like this deal, I'm not entirely sure there's a structure where we can co-invest. So we might end up having to, to compete on this, but fuck it, there's more to gain from talking about it. Ah, gee, I really love hearing you say that. That's exactly how I think about it as well. But I'd love to dive deeper on how you manage your relationships in VC because God knows there's many people yeah. to manage in this ecosystem. I, I, I narrow down my relationships. So I, I, I give everybody the benefit of the doubt, but you, you have a couple of interactions where you, you share some thoughts. And then if what I get back is, oh yeah, yeah, I think the team is great and interesting market. 
like that that's not an opinion like can we like dig a bit deeper if we don't get there i mean i don't have to get along with everyone or not everyone has to entertain me and, and my my rents so uh, i don't mind it but i yeah my network self-selects for people that i feel like i'm having a, a more exciting exchange with like-mindedness if you want Guillaume, I'd love to dive deeper on that note of long feedback cycles because I'd love to hear how you, you know, stay sane and evaluate yourself as a VC. That, that's the main output I, I go in for because I think VC has incredibly long feedback cycles. So there's frankly not that many ways of knowing whether you're even doing a good job. So you got to find other metrics to kind of be happy with your job on a, on a daily basis. And for me, that's I get energized by meeting founders systematically, almost systematically. The amount of, of, of calls I, I take where I go in, I'm like, this, I'm not excited about what these guys do. And then you get into the call and you come out of it and it's like, all right, I, I still don't like that vertical that much, but these guys got me pumped about what they're doing because they're so passionate about it. And similarly with, with other VCs. The one thing I'm frustrated about is how all ad hoc and unstructured it, it is. Like I, I wish I had, but it scares me how this idea of deal sharing or exchanging ideas is just top of mindedness. And I, I keep trying to come up with a better system. I keep trying to build my own CRM with tagging of what people usually get excited about. And it, it never works. It's like, oh, I was catching up with XYZ last week. And he mentioned that they're looking at deals in this vertical. And now I'm seeing this company. So I'm going to reach out. And so a lot of this is just, it's almost like trying to just constantly uh, have catch-ups and, and opportunities to ping. But you got to manage it also in a way that otherwise your, your calendar just fills up with endless catch-up chats and you're like, wait. Part of that challenge is also the beauty of it, right? Because there's so many, you have probably seen way more than I have. There's so many like startups building now to kind of, you know, solve problems like that where you can have, you know, deal flow sharing done in a better way, whatever, you know. I'm always super, super, super skeptic about that. Like, I don't, I don't know why, just when I start reading about it, I'm like, fuck, this will not work. <laughs> it will just become another, you know, whatever. Quality will not be high. You never know what's going in there. And so the beauty of it is on the one hand that it's not kind of scalable to some point, in my view, right? What, what do you think about that, Gil? Well, absolutely, because I think VCs, most of them, not all of them, but a lot of them have the Groucho Marx syndrome, right? Like, of why am I saying this? A handful don't have to ask themselves that because they've just they been out there and they have very privileged networks. A handful are not asking themselves that, but they probably should because they, they don't deserve that much. And then for the rest, it's like, as much as I form my own opinions and I don't just invest in something because Excel is investing, you're asking, wait, why is this on my desk? And, and that's also part of our geographic focus. It eliminates that, yeah. a lot of that risk in that, all right, all right, as far as Central and Eastern Europe, if something lands on my desk, I have reasonable confidence that I, I understand why. It's because we have good track record, reach, and, and network here. Uh, so they want to have a chat with us, and that, that's understandable. But because of the weird funding landscape these days, we've started to have companies from the U.S. reach out. Like, hey, we, we reserve pre-seed in, in the Valley and we're based in the US, but we have some co-founder from CE and we're now fundraising our seed round and like, yeah, that sounds like you guys need a bridge and the local ecosystem has just passed on you and, and now you're extending your reach. And honestly, again, it's all part of the evaluation process of understanding the context and it's far from being a, a perfect world. Otherwise, we would be a stock exchange where there's perfect transparency between yeah. the offer and the demand, right? Here, sometimes it's just eclectic and sometimes I think VCs, we get in our own way thinking that the founders spend as much time about fundraising as we do, but they don't. They're busy building a business. And it does happen that they wake up at the 11th hour with, oh, we need to fundraise and we know no one in this ecosystem. And they just Google and they find you and they reach out and, and it's a perfectly good startup. And that's what it is. That that can happen. But 
Yeah, you want to understand what's the context around that deal sharing process. We quickly run out of time in these things, and I hate it because I, I really like talking about these topics. But I really want to carve enough time for us to talk a bit about succession plan. And I think mm -hmm. the way I'd like to ask it to you is, you know, many of our listeners are emerging GPs, so they're actually hustling to get fund one. So they're like, kind of, I don't even give a fuck about thinking about the sustainability of the firm. I just make, need to make sure it survives, like, you know, and it, and it exists next year. But still. I do think there's yeah. a lot to be said about thinking about it early on, right? So my question to you is very kind of macro from what's going on at Credo, what you guys are talking about, and like, why is this something that's important for you guys? And how do you think about it, generally speaking? I, I would carve out what I, I would describe as the institutional VCs, the, the big guys that have been around forever, and, and they clearly have a way of doing succession planning. And frankly, I don't know enough about their inner workings because it's such a different world as far as I'm concerned. It's like mm -hmm. the corporates where, where with a startup in terms of, of culture and team size. But someone should look at that as well because there's still a lot of movement at the GP level in between those funds. So surely someone is not happy with the deal they're getting and, and is being pushed somewhere else. And there's been a lot of movement lately with the US funds wanting to open up their offices in London. So there's, there's something on. But I, I would leave that apart. When I think of boutique VCs like Credo, I think succession planning is insanely difficult to do because you get a first-time fund manager, they get lucky or they get good and then they get some success and they manage to raise one, two, three fund and potentially along the way may make a good bit of money. So there's not that much incentive to even care about succession planning. Like You can go the way of, hey, I'm, I've made money and I can hire smart people to go do the grind now instead of me or in terms of access uh, picking and, and winning. And I'll still keep a bunch of the carry because I get to and frankly... Yeah, that's, that's kind of an understandable position. But then those funds, I think, shouldn't be surprised when their principals or, or junior partners say, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm grinding away here. And I'm, so they either leave and become their, raise their own funds or they join with a better deal in, in another boutique uh, VC. At Credo, for reasons uh, that are, you would have to ask Andre and Jan, but they've had this mindset of, hey, we, we're in this for the activity to continue. And they fit that model. Like we've had UiPath has been a fantastic success story and it's made a lot of people very rich. And there would be this version of, hey, we're raising one last fund and then we're shutting this down, this thing down because we don't have to keep doing this, to be honest. But they don't want to. First of all, I think, I sincerely think they've, they started this thing back in 2010, 2011, just because they fundamentally believed in the value of, of startups and, and entrepreneurship. And they just wanted to be part of it, uh, not for the money, because frankly, it was a bit crazy to do this back then anyway. And now, even now they've, that they've had a success, they still like it for the same reasons. Uh, so they just keep wanting to do it. There is this idea that in the maybe next couple of funds, they're going to want to start to take a step down and, and take some more time off, which is understandable, but they do want to make sure it continues. So the way they do it is equal partnership, equal carry distribution. It, I, I came back, so I kind of, they, they knew me and I, I'm, I'm this weird example of, hey, I joined as an associate and I graduated to GP, but the model is GP only by default. And then if we happen to have associates or, or analysts around, it's because we met some smart people and we just want them to hang out. But there is no uh, clear roadmap to graduating to GP. And we, we had to hire two externals, Maciek and, and Carol. They're coming in, equal carry, full trust model, which uh, I realize is the benchmark model, which is why I was referencing the Acquired podcast, because they really thought through this thing where like to me, this is obvious. It makes so much sense. We're, we're contributing to. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, we wouldn't have raised the fund without Jan and Andre's track record. But as far as day to day, we, we're all working equally hard. So why doesn't everybody do this? They had a very nice way of putting it. It's, it's very difficult to maintain quality, and that's the challenge we're setting ourselves up for. But we're, we're okay with it. 
is that when you have this equal partnership, you have a tendency to gravitate towards the average. And so if you introduce an element that's below the average, everything shifts down, your top performers become frustrated with this, and they end up leaving. So maintaining that quality is tough. You, you need to find the, the right profile of type A people, whatever that means, but like driven and, and ambitious, but also low ego and willing to completely trust and cooperate regardless of performance. We do deals on a non-consensus basis as everybody does, obviously, but the moment we, we you cannot go into the territory of when one of those deals just doesn't work out and, and one person was deeply opposed at the time, you cannot go into the territory of, I told you so, we should have not done this deal because once we do the deal, we do the deal and, and we move on. Like we've done deals where I frankly wouldn't have done them. I've, I've made deals that my colleagues were like, I'm not entirely sure why we're doing this. But they happen, we move on, they work out, they don't work out. I think there is value in evaluating the process, but you have to separate out from the outcome. And that's from a, a book I freaking love called Thinking in Bets, where it, it takes from poker, right? That you can be the best poker player out there making all the right statistics decision on, on your bets and still lose because the process is separate from the outcome in a lot of cases, which we can call that luck, I guess, or lack of luck. So we do evaluate our process to make sure we maintain our standards, to make sure we don't compromise for the benefit of CE. You separate that from the output and then hopefully it works. I have one question and you've alluded to this before in this interview as well, and that is on succession change inside a VC firm. I'd love to dive deeper on this and really dive into how you've worked with that inside your company because you're going through that right now and I know that you've put a lot of thought into it. What do you think that you guys have uh, been so far quite successful in planning it and executing it. It does help once you've had some good success like UiPath because for, for the two GPs who are leaving, it's a whole lot easier to just make a clean departure when you've already made a fair bit of money, to be honest. But there are LPs in the fund investing their own money in it. But as far as the GP level, it's a clean break. We're not involved yeah. in this one. Yeah. They're staying, they're keeping the carry in the previous funds, they're keeping their board seats, but we are having a very cordial continuation. So. Unfortunately, I have to wrap this up. Sorry, Andreas. I, I feel like you are getting your juices flowing, but we have to wrap it up. And uh, Guillaume, we always end our episodes the same way. It's a quick fire round. Quick fire round. We ask a couple of quick mm -hmm. answer questions. Thirty to sixty seconds each. Are you ready for it? Not really, but let's let's try. <laughs> I feel like that's the that's where you hope that people slip and say something without thinking about it, where, where you get the. the <laughs> Yeah, that's what Let's we see. use on our, our social media. We copy paste everything and just make it online. No, I'm kidding. First question though is what areas, sectors, or technologies excite you the most that you find people around you not really getting that excited about? Uh, so I have, I have a bit of a non-answer to this, which I'll get excited about any vertical. If the founders are, are product obsessed and, and you, you can tell that they, they just constantly think through this thing and, and live and breathe it, they'll get me excited about any vertical. If, I've gotten excited about B2C apps, even though they were in crowded space. The last deal I, I did is technically biotech, even though I, I don't know about biotech, but they, they can convince me of anything. So we have our geo focus. We don't have the, the luxury of being vertical focused, which has its challenges. It means we keep our eyes out and I'll jump into anything. Second question is what would be your top tips or tip to emerging managers across Europe? Find your angle. Find your angle across these three pillars of, of how to be good or at least get deals done on, on access, picking or, or winning. So access through privileged network uh, or grinding and outbound and, and building meetups, picking through maybe having a deep expertise in a given vertical, which lets you contribute to the process in, in that you, you add that expertise. Winning in that, that has to come after. Obviously, there's no winning if you haven't accessed and picked, but uh, in, in your ability to help the founders or, or 
create a, a, a yeah. trusted relationship with them. Third and final question, which is what has been your most counterintuitive learning since you've been at Credo? I think there's been very sobering uh, elements, both from the wins and the losses. The feedback cycles are insanely long, but now that I have the benefit of having been in VC since 2014 and Credo since 16, it's been long enough that we're starting to see those. And to go back to this concept of separating out the process, decision-making process and outcome, it's been very sobering to realize that I can put myself back in the shoes of, of a pro decision process where you're like, this deal is absolutely amazing. I'm so excited about it. And then it fails at least along the parameters that got you excited for spectacular reasons and vice versa. I've been deeply opposed to certain deals we've done that have worked out beautifully. I love to do this retrofit evaluation. It's tough to do it because you have to separate out the emotions of the out outcome from the process, but that's why I'm a compulsive note taker because I can go and reread my thoughts and notes from the time and realize how wrong I was sometimes. I love hearing that. I'm a bit trying to be as organized as I can myself. I'd love to hear, what is your trick for uh, keeping yourself organized? I put everything in our CRM. So we use Affinity as a CRM and I put everything in there because that's the best place to keep it organized and attached to the relevant uh, deals. Nothing exciting there. Ah, that makes sense. Same structure as we do. Well, nothing else to say then. Thanks a million for joining us, Guillaume. It was awesome. Congratulations on the race of the new fund. You guys are doing an amazing work. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Vaban, a Qatar company, is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. An all-in-one integrated solution to form syndicates, VC funds, and co-investment SPV programs built for scale. Supporting the next generation of global ventures from fundraising to exits, Vaban provides an automated back office, allowing their clients to focus on what matters, finding the next unicorn and building their network. Vaban has facilitated over $1 billion of capital invested in companies such as Revolut, Bolt and Airbnb. To learn more, please reach out at vaban.io forward slash EUVC. And don't forget to mention EUVC. The 15th of December is the day you need to have in mind. EUVC is hosting a webinar with Kathy, David and Andreas. Kathy will show us how to approach PR as an individual and as a firm. Sign up at eu.vc forward slash events.